All right. There have been so many ridiculous articles over the last few weeks. Here was one of the crazier ones I saw. Washington is thinking about banning dwarf tossing. The only experience I have with dwarf dwarf tossing is from the Leonardo DiCaprio movie Wolf of Wall Street. I guess I would be curious to hear the arguments, or better arguments, I guess, for banning dwarf tossing. I don't think I could steal man that argument. You know, and I guess that's just indicative of my lack of understanding. But I think the arguments from the article were pretty weak. And, you know, I, I know this whole line of discussion sounds ridiculous, but bear with me just for a second. So, the, so one of the arguments was that dwarf tossing is never funny. <laughs> and like, uh, again, I'm like, please stop telling me what I'm allowed to find funny. You know, I think pretty soon we'll go to the comedy club and you'll have to have AI as the MC. And, you know, to start the show, the AI is going to say something like, here to tell us a Jewish joke is a Jew. Then we'll have, you know, a Mexican-American carefully, carefully mock Hispanic culture. And finally, the headliner, a black, to poke gentle fun at the African-American community. The second argument in the article was that it's humiliating and degrading for the dwarf. And, you know, my reaction to that was, yeah, and so are like 95% of all jobs. Can I eliminate every job where the worker feels humiliated and degraded? I mean, there would be like 16 jobs left, right? So I'm not saying there aren't strong arguments. I'm saying the arguments I've heard are weak. And, you know, I think weak arguments actually strengthen the other side. When someone presents a weak argument, in my head, I just think, is this the best you've got? Is that the strongest argument you have? And I guess I'll take it one step further. You know, I feel that a lot of the discussion on some of these issues is driven by activists. And, you know, more and more, I'm finding myself suspicious of activism. When an activist talks, I ask myself this. I say, is the group the activist is talking about homogeneous? For example, do all dwarves have the same ideas, the same experiences, the same beliefs? No, of course not. Immediately, I get suspicious because the activist is reducing an individual to a single trait. You know, here's an idea. If the most important thing about you is an immutable characteristic, you're probably doing something wrong. I think of John Rawls and the veil of ignorance. You know, the body that you were put into kind of happened by chance. Don't let it define you. And don't let other people let it define you. 
That's not to say real prejudice doesn't exist, but if we respond to prejudice by assuming that everyone in that group is the same, isn't that kind of what the racists and the sexists want us to believe? And the other question I always have is, you know, why does this person, this activist, think that they can speak for the group? Were they elected? Did they just appoint themselves? And, you know, if they did just wake up one day and decide they had the right to speak for this huge, heterogeneous group of millions of people, how arrogant, <laughs> how arrogant do you have to be to do that? Why, why do we assume that activists are good people? It's not, it's not easy to be virtuous. It's very easy to pretend to be virtuous. But it's very easy to be self-serving. And that means, you know, just based on probabilities, the activist is more likely simply to be seeking power. And then finally, you know, just look at the ideas and the proposed policies in isolation. Are they sensible? Have the ideas considered second-order effects? Do they even understand what unintended consequences are? Or do they just assume that the world is simple and easily manipulated? It's not. I mean, the world is complex. The world is irreducibly complex. Reality is messy. Simple plans in complex systems fail spectacularly. <laughs> you know, I mean, just think about this for a second. What if they ban the industry and then the dwarf tossing industry gets driven underground? You know, the new speakeasy is the dwarf tossing easy. Suddenly the cops start busting bars looking for dwarf tossing rings. You know, the dwarves are getting arrested. The kids start thinking that dwarf tossing is cool just because it's forbidden. I don't think you can legislate morality. And by the time you have to try, the situation is already bad, right? Something has already gone very wrong. I, you know, I think you have to go upstream from an unpopular opinion or activity to find the real problem. You know, and by the way, why did some obscure news story from Washington State get so widely disseminated? I think it's because it creates outrage. The story exists solely to generate outrage. Outrage creates attention, right? I mean, boring articles don't get retweets. Attention creates clicks. Clicks create money. Again, follow the money. And what's crazy is that this is also the exact same approach as the Russians use to create division in the U.S. And my understanding is based on the discussion between Sam Harris and I think her name is Renee DeResta. It was episode 145 on his podcast. And the conclusion was, laying aside all the conspiracy theories, is that the Russians used and still use a brute force approach. They throw a lot of articles and memes and tweets at the wall to see what sticks, what creates the most outrage. Whatever doesn't work, they throw away, and then they try variations on what does work. I mean, they are using the feedback of reality. 
This is a classic evolutionary approach. They are using natural selection to find for them the perfect outrage meme. And, and they can do this at lightning speed because of social media. Social media accelerates the process of natural selection. Social media provides immediate feedback. Remember Bill Clinton? In the early 90s, I think he was really the first to figure out the power of polls. He used polling to figure out what the American people were thinking, and then he would tailor his message accordingly. But think about this. Polls take days to collect. They're, they're very expensive. Today, that approach feels, you know, antediluvian. A tweet is free, and the feedback takes 15 minutes. You can try 100 messages and see which one or two resonate. The process of trial and error is enormously accelerated. Social media is, how can I put this? It's like, uh, it's like evolution on steroids, <laughs> right? That's why politicians who understand Twitter are the winners. They get better feedback faster. And they're able to change their message, iterate it, adapt it, tailor it faster and therefore better. And, you know, the danger is that in a divided country, what works will be outrage. Outrage will get the donations. Outrage will create the voter turnout. And you know, <laughs> that's a road that leads directly to tribal warfare. <laughs> Anyways, I think that's enough out of me for one week. I will catch you later.